This is the Design Goggles podcast on BNB Radio. Checking out architecture and design is a pretty good way to keep track of how the world changes. Designers have a unique way of looking at cities, and Seattle is a city that's changing fast. More people are moving here every day, and understanding what's different and what's next has never been more important. So, put on your design goggles and join us in checking out the view. I'm Charles. I'm a designer here at Board and Vellum. I live in the Central District neighborhood, and I've been a Seattleite for two years. And I'm Rachel. I'm a designer here at Board and Vellum. I live in the Old Ballard neighborhood, and I grew up here in Seattle. This week's show is titled Seattle's Changing Hands. You might have noticed there are some new people in town, and who knows, maybe you're one of them. Who Seattleites are, where they're from, and what Seattle really means to us are complicated subjects these days. People from all over the country are finding a new home here, and some people who grew up in Seattle are finding that a little hard to get used to. Sure, there's an influx of new jobs and a booming economy, but that basically comes with a whole bunch of middle-class people starting families right in the center of the city. What does it mean for the evolution of our neighborhoods when huge numbers of new families suddenly appear in our urban center? What kind of opportunities are there to let new people into the beating heart of Seattle? How do we continue to recognize the rhythm of the beat? To help us answer that question and more, we are joined by Monica Guzman, director of The Evergrey, a digital news publication that helps Seattleites make the most of their city. Monica, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. So the first thing we ask everybody that comes on is how long you've been in Seattle and what neighborhood you live in. Right. So this is 2018. I got here December 31st, 2006. So... That's really specific. Yeah. I remember because I uh, was staying at a friend's apartment and I told him, wake me up for the fireworks. And he forgot. Oh, (laughs) shaming out him. What's his name? Yep. Oh, man. So what did you, what neighborhood did you move into when you first got here? Belltown, which looked very different at that time. What was it like when you got there? Um, I remember hearing it was the posh neighborhood. It was the neighborhood with a big nightlife. And that certainly was true. I remember colleagues of mine at the Seattle Post-Intelligencer, that's where I worked at the time, would tell me, you know, you're going to hate how all that noise is going to keep you up at night. But I loved it. I loved it. I loved sort of, you know, it's midnight, it's 1 a.m., I'm not quite in bed, and I can hear everyone having fun. How many different neighborhoods in Seattle have you lived in since then? So let's see. After Belltown, it was Eastlake. And after Eastlake, it's Wedgwood, where I am now. So where did you come from right before you got to Seattle? So I moved here directly from, and there's a visual with this. I'm raising my hand. I'm pointing to the middle of my hand. This is Michigan. In the middle of Michigan is Midland, Michigan. Uh, this small town where I worked at, at a small town newspaper for about eight months. So I was in Midland, Michigan, and then moved here to Seattle to work at the Seattle PI. You know, that's the thing I see only people from Michigan do. They do that hand thing. Yeah. I'm like, well, why don't we do a Washington thing? We should. What would we do? It would be, you got to use like the right hand. That's a great idea. (laughs) No, in Pennsylvania, we do this because that's literally the shape of the state. Yeah, totally. No, but see, now you're backwards because see, if Puget Sound is like... Yeah, yeah, this is the this is the best watching. radio show ever where you're looking at things. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's get back on track here. Let me think. So we know we now know where on the hand Midland, Michigan is. Uh, so where did you grow up? Way, way, way before Michigan. Right. So I was born in Monterrey, uh, Nuevo León, Mexico. So in Mexico, and I moved to the states when I was five or six. Can't believe I'm not sure. 
Um, and I grew up mostly. No date for that? You'd think I would know, but I was really It was little. an earlier time. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I grew up actually mostly in New England. So New Hampshire, uh, the seacoast area of New Hampshire. Fun fact. Shaped more like this. Yeah, it's it's like I want hand signals for everyone. I don't think you can do a hand with New Hampshire. So like Mexico, I can't really. (laughs) (laughs) I guess with like two fingers, actually, raise two fingers, you kind of have New Hampshire. Um, Fun fact: it has the shortest coastline of any state in the United States. On the coast, I would assume. Yeah, right. Except the ones that don't have. I was like Kansas. (laughs) Might have it. But anyway, but yeah, but I grew up mostly there, and I went to school in Maine, and then hopped around the country a couple times. starting off in journalism before landing here in Seattle. Was there a single place that you found most impressionable on your view of the world? Or was it all that moving around that kind of became your view of the world? Ooh, interesting. You mean of all the places I've lived? Dang, that's a great question. Um, I don't know. I think um, I think my view of the world is somewhat uh, impacted by the fact that I was born in Mexico, but spent most of my sort of coming of age time in a in like the United States mm-hmm. so I feel a real kinship with the United States but I feel this calling to Mexico and yeah in a strange way this is maybe the first time I've ever said it out loud but I think that's helped me uh in journalism because it's easy for me to see uh different perspectives without feeling too tied to any one of them now you mentioned before calling to Mexico uh you also talk a lot about uh, both on the show and in person about how much you love Seattle. Was there something like you had a your job here when you moved here? Was that what pulled you here? Had you been here before? What was it that like took root in you that sort of gave you the passion for the city? Yeah. So the necessary context on that is right out of college, I was really lucky and I got this fellowship with Hearst newspapers. So Hearst newspapers, they go way back. William Randolph Hearst, if you've heard of yellow journalism, all that stuff, that that's the guy. So they own the Houston Chronicle and the San Francisco Chronicle and a couple big papers. So I got this fellowship with them. So after college, I ended up sort of hopping the country because of that fellowship. So I did eight months at the Houston Chronicle as a cops reporter and then eight months at the Midland Daily News, this small paper in Midland, Michigan, uh, mostly as an education reporter. And then... It was time to figure out where my third shift would be because it was a two-year fellowship, so I needed you know one more eight-month shift. Um, and I remember my advisor on the fellowship really wanted me to go to San Antonio because Hearst had a newspaper there, and I really did not want to go to San Antonio. And I loved, I mean, San Antonio was fine; it was nice. There's a river; it's warm. I don't know. But there was the Seattle Post Intelligencer, and I knew that that was a possibility. And I really wanted to go to Seattle, having never set foot in Seattle. The best explanation I can give for that is Frasier. <laughs> I grew up. At least it wasn't Grayson Adam. I mean, it's really sad to say it, to say that, but it's true. Um, you know. I watched my shows growing up. I, I wouldn't say like Frasier was my favorite show. I don't think it was. But there was something about it I really liked and that made me have this weird unconscious affinity towards Seattle. And then on top of that, the little that I knew about Seattle just made me think I like it, that it's the kind of urban environment that I wanted. And this coming from someone, I was born in Mexico's 
third or fourth largest city, but I didn't really live there, you know, in my formative years. I lived in a small town in New Hampshire and I wanted to experience the big city. And Seattle just felt like better than San Antonio. <laughs> they were going to so, put that on license plates. They changed it Tell the, the Chamber minute. of Commerce. Yeah. We have a new, new catchline. <laughs> did you find what you expected when you got here? Did you find it different? Definitely found it different. Uh, funny story, actually. In those first couple weeks after the night that my friend didn't wake me up to see the New Year's Eve fireworks in Seattle, I actually thought that Queen Anne was downtown Seattle. I actually thought that because that's where the Space Needle is. So I must be in downtown Seattle. And it took a, it took a little <laughs> while, an embarrassing amount of time. I mean, I was just walking around, so I don't know. Um, I, it was just everything... I mean, I don't know if y'all remember, right, like what it feels like to move into a big city, not just to move into a big city, but to move into a big city when you're young. Um, and I was, what, 24? And, and not only young, but I'm sort of that person who is very much the student. Uh, and I'm the student for a very long time. I don't feel the master of anything until I've spent a long time there. So Seattle felt so big. And, and hard to grasp and just beyond me. And I was just scared and dazzled all at the same time. So those, those first few weeks were pretty overwhelming. Um, the, the side of Seattle I ended up, that ended up sort of grabbing me was the tech scene that was happening around 2007, 2008. So I was tasked at the Seattle Post-Intelligencer. This was a fun time in journalism where uh, basically, you know, the seniors in newsrooms were like, we don't know the answer, but we know young people have it. So let's just let's just throw them out there. <laughs> hey, you're 24. You use Facebook, right? Great. Can you start a beat about uh, technology and youth and stuff in Seattle? Can you do that? Because we feel like there's stuff going on. So that's what I was doing. And I started this beat. I remember my blog was called Net Native. Um, so, yeah. And I didn't know what the heck I was doing. I mean, nobody does when they start something. But I ended up um, going out to all these meetups and events that bloggers were putting on. Um, there was this monthly blogging meetup because blogging was still oh, yeah. novel mm -hmm. and uh, all kinds of things. And pretty soon there were tweet ups. And that was a thing for a while. And uh, and all these companies, all these startups, everything's up, up, up. Uh, all these startups and the energy around them. And the event that actually was the most, just the biggest moment for me, I remember. Have you all ever heard of Ignite Seattle? Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Still going on. Yeah. I had the privilege of emceeing it for three years Ooh. recently. But um, I went to the second ever Ignite um, I want to say it was February 2007 or something like that. I was surrounded by people who had great ideas and didn't need to know that they would work out in order to pursue them. And that blew my mind. Having grown up in the Northeast, I was a very good student, like to a fault. I wouldn't enjoy myself so that I could be a good student. Mm -hmm. And I had a very achievement-oriented frame of mind when it came to life. And uh, here I was in Seattle. I met Ignite Seattle. Ignite, by the way, is this speaking format where people do five-minute talks. And the talks are about a grab bag of things, but almost always something that the speaker is severely passionate about. 
And I just saw people who had been to Burning Man, right? This crazy, artsy, nutty conference in Black Rock somewhere, uh, Nevada. I don't I forget where it is. And just all these artists and people who had built things and done prototypes and amazing things. And I was like, my God, this is great. This is the creativity here, the energy here. Um, and actually somebody, that, that was also the time when Flickr was popular. Oh, wow. I remember <laughs> Flickr. Oh, man. Do you remember Flickr? Yeah. It's, still, it's still out there. It's still a thing. But someone took a picture of me from that night, just leaned over my notebook writing, and there's this smile on my face. And I'm sort of grateful that somebody got that picture of me because my whole sort of worldview was changing, and I was beginning to fall for Seattle. Was that also sort of the beginnings yeah. of the Evergrey way, way, way back? Or is that something that came much later? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, we can trace the beginnings <laughs> of the right. Evergrey back and we back and back. This course, all you can see the Evergrey clearly started in the Protozoic era. Exactly. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, you know, uh, yeah, there's a way that you can trace it all back. But, you know, was I in the frame of mind to start a thing? Absolutely not. <laughs> uh, was I in the frame of mind to think really radically about journalism? No, not yet. But I was just beginning to appreciate that a lot of quote unquote news is really just the energy of people, how it manifests and circulates, because that was what the tech scene was doing. There was no there were no textbooks, right? There were no committees and organizations and institutions. It was it was literally a lot of people who were really into things, all getting to know each other. And um, what I learned from that was that's actually everything. It's everything. You can see past the institutions and the structures to the energy of people circulating ideas. And that is what actually matters if you're trying to get to know what's going on around you. Wow. Well said. You know, there's like eight different questions I want to ask you because it's like those days to me, I mean, maybe I'm wrong about it. I perceive those days as being tech was still under the radar enough that there wasn't this pushback like they had such a small culture the early 2000s here that mm, they could we were such a such a geeky city yeah, yeah. and that and now it's its own living breathing speaking thing. as absolutely uh, you know full-on geek right so what, what do you mean by that why do you say that 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 we're a geeky city well yeah that you, i mean you i think, that, I think that's, a, that's of... a seattle pride kind of thing i mean we've always we've had a lot of these really early tech companies and it's been part of our identity for a long time, even though it didn't really, I don't know that we got recognized for it as early as San Francisco and Palo Alto and all those places, right. but that we have that history that goes way back. Yep. And, and there's definitely a, you know, even before it was really just tech, the way we think of tech now, I mean, there was Boeing before that, which was very technical, if yes. not what we use the, what we usually use the word tech for as an adjective these days. Yeah. And so Seattle has always been a very heady, geeky kind yeah. of community, and we love it and own it and we do. take pride in it. Yes, that's part of what I loved. You seeing can be here. a total geek or a total dork or all these things. Like I, I think of those words as like I, I self-identify with those words, and I think other communities might see those words as as insults or things. Yeah. But like for us, we self-identify that way, and we, yes. we take pride in it. Absolutely, I think that is part. I'm really glad you said that because that is part of what I appreciated when I came here is all these people who you look at them, there's nothing glamorous about them. There's nothing overly produced about them. They're not trying to impress anybody. 
they're just having a blogging meetup. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so true. And yeah. and the people in that blogging meetup, when you read their blogs, they're freaking genius, right? And everyone's sitting around at Ralph's Grocery in Delhi, which used to be in Belltown. And it's this, you know, the meetup was just in, in a grocery. <laughs> and there were these amazing people. And they were just in their sweats. And they didn't, you know, they were just who they were doing their thing. And that was good enough. And I love that. It's funny, we spend so much time talking about all the things that have changed, but that seems to have not changed at all. I think that's the thing that we that we get to have here in Seattle is this there is an intellectual thread of of it being cool to be uh to 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 like books and to like reading yeah. things and to dork out about stuff. Like we like that. And and you get to you get to be okay yes. being like that here. So conversely, what's drastically different from when you first got here what's drastically different now from yeah, when i first got yeah here? from your eyes from your perspective oh, man where to begin yeah. i mean in a way i feel it's difficult to answer that question because literally every day i'm covering the change in seattle i'm writing and thinking about it and it becomes so multifaceted that it's hard to even give it a name anymore you know there's so many little stories to pick out is there something that comes up more often I was noticing in your in your recent interview, uh, the gentleman who opened the or is opening the co-working space uh, at the end, you just sort of asked him to touch on. I don't remember the exact question you asked his experience in the city or because he was a newcomer. Uh, and he talked a little bit about feeling welcomed or feeling rather unwelcome. Yes. Um, and so here's this entrepreneur opening this place that people can join and be together and have a community. Um, yet felt unwelcome. Is that something that comes up a lot? Yeah. Uh, he was referring to, um, yeah, to, to others who feel that certain neighborhoods are not for them, that maybe the whole city is not for them. And that was not something I heard a lot when I first got to Seattle. So actually, yeah, I think that's one of the big changes that is worth stopping to think about and scrutinize. I mean, y'all know we have the hottest housing market for sure. in the country. We've had it for a long time. We keep busting through these records. Crazy things happen. Did y'all hear about the pigs, the green pigs? I didn't have a chance to read. I saw the image actually on the other day. Yeah. I didn't get a chance to click on it. What so happened? quick, quick catch up this week. These, I don't know how big they are. I don't know. Yay big, right? Like how you want to describe that on the air? I don't know. 30, 30 <laughs> inches long. Sure. Um, cool. These fine. green yeah. pigs started appearing in parks all over the city this week. And so what often happens when people see something curious in their urban environment, they go, ooh, what is this? But in the back of their head, they're going, I hope it's something cool. I hope it's like a disruptive art project. I hope it's something delightful. That is only here, I think. So that's a, maybe. That's a special Seattle thing. Because we're so creative, Yes, you can actually run into a really disruptive, delightful art project. Well, these green pigs were put up around the city by a real estate company in Denver who was trying to market itself. And what's interesting is I think the Seattle, when I moved here, would have reacted very differently. There might have been, you know, 10, 11 years ago, might have been a sense of, oh, interesting. Instead, people hated these things. They hated them. Um, there's Reddit threads of people just going, what is wrong with you, So are they company? trying, why pigs? Are they trying to, like, piggyback on the pig at Pikeless it's Market? It's something about what are they the doing? money you like, save. Oh, oh, so they're not yeah. even, they're not even taking a, like, local legend of the, the pig at Pikeless Market and they're not even. No, not 
so that they're that. kind of like missing the point because people would recognize that. Maybe. Yeah. It's um, what people were saying was sort of, you know, you you read our region wrong. Um, and you're also a real estate company. And right now we have a lot of anxiety about whether real estate is accessible to people here. And uh, so it just it just fell flat. Right. Just kind of backfired. In fact, the company this week told the Seattle Times they're going to donate some money to the Pike Place Market Foundation and to our parks department, which has been running around cleaning these things up. So it did not work. But it's just one one of many indicators, right, that there is this anxiety about who belongs, who can belong, and who is the city for anyway. Just earlier today, a few hours ago, I didn't hear the whole conversation, but it was some other place in the city or the region, might have been on Bashan, there were pigs that were being set out on display and it was because they had put out a bunch of manure to fertilize oh. all the gardens. Oh. And it was so strong. But so they had these little pig inserts that would fit into the planters that was just like, oh, you know, pardon our smell. We're just fertilizing the thing. And so that's why I thought, so it's using the pig as an icon is such, like, I, I wonder how many people that aren't native to Seattle, because pig and fertilizer, that's just the side thing. Yeah. Then you have the pig as the, the, you know, little penny bake type thing, right? But then I wonder, you know, the pig that's at Pike Place Market, how many people that are newcomers aren't aware of what a like, yeah, big Seattle right. thing that pig was? I was going to say, I don't, think, I don't think people would have jumped to that. Because it was a while own. ago when they, you know, when there was the, they would do, um, they had artists and, they, and like an artist would be like, I'll make one of these pigs. And then they were all around the city everywhere. And they were all modeled after that pig at Pikeless Market who's, um, you know, everybody loves and poses and takes selfies name. with. And so I, I think it's Rachel. I think it's Rachel. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm pretty sure it's your name. Yeah. You are the pig at Pike Place Market. Yeah, the explanation that you gave was the last explanation. I but like thought. the other t- cities did that, like there was cows in uh, I forget where I don't know Chicago or somewhere, and and like other cities have done this thing where you have local artists each make one and then they scatter and populate yeah. the city. Interesting. And so I, that that's so ingrained in me that the idea of using the pig as an icon in other places that's the first place my brain goes is oh it's the Pike Place pig. That's telling. And then yeah. when it's not. Yeah, like what are you doing? You're like taking this thing that's this kind of local mascot mm-hmm. and using it to promote your business in a way that's not promoting Seattle. That totally just rubs me the wrong way. Yep. You know, it reminded me of a story when I was in D.C. Uh, there was this one very centrally located uh, subway stop, uh, Dupont Circle, which has this super super steep escalator, and there's sort of this Oculus at the top, and they're between the steep escalator. There are these landscape-style stepped concrete blocks as you come up out of the ground. And it goes on for like 20, 30 feet. And there was earth in them, but never anything planted. And one day, one spring, someone had planted flowers in all of them. And it was gorgeous and it was beautiful. And everyone complained. What? Everyone complained. And they were ripped out by the city. Yes. They, they didn't have any signs on them. I mean, they were just because, flowers. Because they was against the rules. What? The rules were we must have dirt here the only? The rules were that's not like some random person can't be planting flowers. They can be planted, but they have to be planted by the people oh, who are supposed so to be planting them. 
And I think eventually there was this petition, because there had to be a petition. There was a petition about what types of flowers they should be and where they should be and how many. And it all needed to be quantified and planned. You guys, was- I've just drooped physically. <laughs> like a wilting flower. It's funny because I feel like they, whoever whoever's idea it was to plant the pigs got it like half right and screwed it up. And like this was just some guerrilla artist or some nice person who was trying to do something nice. And like the nature of the city as just like, nope, we're just all type A people. We need stuff to be orderly and planned out. Like beauty can't happen by accident. In my, in my 11 years here, this is an interesting self question. How many disruptive and delightful art projects, you know, have I covered? Many. I have covered many. Uh, for the Evergrey, I wrote about this woman who was putting up signs all around the city that said things like, notice, I still love you. And it looks like a notice sign, right? right? It just looks like you're regular and then you look up and it says like, or actually I think it's, I never stopped loving you. Notice, I never stopped loving you. And there's other ones and people just, they don't know where it comes from. It just makes you pause. And then there's this artist, Ryan Henry Ward. He's Seattle's probably most prolific muralist. You've probably seen his murals. Mm-hmm. Very sort of childlike and beautiful. And um, at one point, this was some years ago, a uh, rectangular drawing of a wizard started appearing on telephone poles. Oh, yeah, yeah. They're all over. This? They're all of, they're still, still now. There. They're still around. There's one like less than a block away from here by our old office. Yeah. I wrote about that. Yeah, yeah that's right. Wrote about that for the Seattle Times, and that was him, and he calls it the Compassion Wizard. And it's sort of his personal icon for love. Love and wonder. And you know what? That seems to be, from my perspective, only been here for a couple of years, so I am not a voice of authority. In fact, both of you are more authoritative in this in this area than I am. But it seems like that spirit hasn't changed the ultimate acceptance of whatever your thing is, whatever you want to do, do it loud, do it outside, do it in front of people, everybody, and it's totally acceptable, kind of almost across the board and encouraged almost across the board, as long as you're putting your energy into it. And there are so many cities, who was I talking to recently about having come from the East Coast? And if you want to do your thing, whatever it is, there are very real barriers between you and doing it. Um, There's permissive barriers like the ones I was talking about in D.C., uh, in New York City, it was a lot more about who you knew. Um, every city had a slightly different thing. Or maybe in Philly, it's almost like, we're going to shame you because that's stupid. But <laughs> I love Philly, so I can say that. Um, but there's in every city, there are, on the East Coast, there were these invisible barriers, where here there are just absolutely none. Uh, and that's definitely something that seems not to have changed. Even though maybe innovative tech culture scares a lot of people, it does fit into that. I, I wonder if that's why the the sort of crisis, the possibility that the city can't accept everyone anymore feels so traumatic for so many people because we're supposed to allow everyone to be who they are. Right. So the fact that some people feel like they can't even be here, how did that happen? And I've heard that from people who grew up in Seattle also, that those same words, though I feel like I'm not welcome here anymore people who grew up here and then if people but if both groups are saying that that's frustrating from my perspective if the people who've lived here for a long time don't feel like they belong and the people just getting here don't feel like they belong right then there is kind of a crisis brewing in there. i think that's really interesting <laughs> yeah because i i have had conversations with people who it sounds like you know 
if they have been here a long time, they really don't like newcomers, mm. right? And and I've had conversations with people who are new, who just really don't understand these, you know, stuck up longtime Seattleites that don't want anything to change. Mm. And there's such a division between the extreme poles of those groups. And I hope it doesn't get in the way of of exactly that, this beautiful thing about Seattle where people can just be themselves. Right. We've talked in shows past about the, I, this concept or not of the Seattle freeze and whether it's a real thing or whether it's not. Or, and I, um, I think some of it might be that there's that fear. So like we've always been as native Seattleites, we're always very comfortable with all of our weirdness and everything. And so we were all internally really chill about that. Like you have your weird thing, I have my weird thing when, you know, it's all fine. But then so then when you start to have people coming from other cities that are not as, they're, they're more judgmental in a more open way than we tend to be. We, it's not that Seattleites aren't judgmental, but we're kind of like passive <laughs> about it. I actually feel like Seattle and, has and judgmental down both sides. Well, but we're <laughs> judgmental, but, 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 but we're not very open about we're our, direct. you know. Yeah. And, and so there's a, Fear, I think that is that if it becomes to be not as general, if, if the general social rule is that we aren't as universally accepting of all of our weirdnesses, you start to get worried that you can't be as comfortable in your own skin as you used to be because a lot of these newcomers are going to just be like, oh, you're so, right. you're just being so Seattle about right. that. Stop it. Cut it out. You know, like there's a bright new world out here beyond the Pacific Northwest and you guys need to get on this train. And it can be, it's, it's like, I think a lot of people come to Seattle because they know about that history and they want to be a part of it. And so there's this conflict, I guess, of some people coming in because they're seeking that specific kernel of, of weirdness and supportiveness of all of this. And, but then there's people that are coming here for, that don't necessarily come here for that reason. Right. And then don't realize that they're rubbing people the wrong way sometimes. Right. And it's it becomes sort of this suspicion, you know, are you here because you are investing in this place and you are open to learning what this place is if you want some of what this place is to rub off on you because you respect it and you want to add to it? Yeah. Or is this sort of like a stop on your, you know, road right. to Silicon Valley or whatever mm-hmm. and you're going to, you know, just do your thing and yeah. and in the meantime sort of somehow dilute what makes us special. And there's such a specialness to this. And so you have this protective, you want to protect what you know is such a cool thing that we have here. And and there's a fear of dilution, but also I think real Seattleites are also so inclusive and excited by meeting other people that just feel like they were meant to be here all along. It's like, you have to feel it out. Like, are you, are you, are you cool? We cool? Okay, okay, yeah, now we're going to be fine. Let's all do this together, and who cares where you're from? But you have to figure out that it's that, that you have that one-to-one and that everything is cool, and we're going to be able to, to go on and build something awesome together. And as the suspicion builds up, the distance builds up. So the ability to build the trust becomes harder, and it's this vicious cycle. One thing I do wish more new people would do would, would be engage with people who have lived here for a long time. You made a statement, it was something along the lines of, uh, that new people want to understand the history of Seattle. I actually, even among my favorite of the newest people, haven't found that as much. I think they're very interested in the future of Seattle and they're excited about the mountains, they're excited about the sound and they're excited about the nature and they're excited about the values. But actually, 
much less so about uh, how the city evolved over time and how it came to be um, or what why people might be scared of new people. Which, by the way, is is human nature, right? Like, the best way to learn something is to experience it. Right. So it's, it is always kind of a tall order to expect someone right, to appreciate the history of a place, it, to appreciate events in a place that they did not live, right? right. To, to appreciate that beloved business, business they've never stepped foot in mm -hmm. and everyone's telling them is a beloved business. Well, that's great. I can appreciate that on a clinical level, right. but it's external to me until I've been here long enough to fall in love with a place. And then it becomes my experiences. And then I can really sort of stand side by side with you and kind of get that. But like, we're always going to be formed by our own experiences, right? And so that becomes so uncomfortable when so many new people come in. For sure. And for those new people, like the lived Seattle is just not going to be the same. Yeah. It's going to be, you know, starting from zero at a different point in the timeline. And so anyway, I just think this is such an interesting challenge and I have a lot of understanding for all of the sides. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. And the relationship with change coming from many other cities. I think maybe that's one of the most unique things about Seattle is the relationship with change is very selective. Um, there are moments in Seattle's, in Seattle's timeline, as I've been looking back, that change was welcomed. But that was like, okay, that was for that moment. And then we went back to not changing. And then there's another moment. Can you give okay an example? Uh, the World's Fair. Uh, the World's Fair and that whole time that's now looked back on with such rose-colored glasses. That was this time, oh my God, Seattle's the future, the whole world looking in. Seattle's this place that's on the cutting edge. Look, they've got like a mobile phone or something, and it's 1963. Um, <laughs> so that's one of those moments. Even, the, I think everybody, every native Seattleite's favorite decade, the 90s, when it was the, the music scene and like change the newest music to come out, the newest band was an exciting thing, and it was okay during that time to be okay with change. Especially coming from the East, change was like a law of nature. Um, even in New York, you it was an understood thing that every five years, the whole place would turn over. Whatever bar, whatever place you made an emotional connection with, you knew the end of that bargain was, it gets, it gets uh, turned over, it turns into something else. Uh, and maybe, I'm postulating here, people coming here are bringing their relationship with change with them and introducing that to people that are just like, wait a second, this is not an approved time of change. Right. Let's talk about this. Well, because let me, let me point out, so I mean, I love the pattern you're picking up because the moments that you talked about change, you, you said, you know, the World's Fair and maybe the 90s with the music and, you know, you could talk about Microsoft and some other things. Uh, change was welcome. And you can see that what was happening at that time, like you said, was the world looking in at Seattle and learning that something was being exported, something beautiful was being exported from Seattle that was coming from Seattle. Yeah, and uniquely Seattle both times. Yes. Yeah. So what about when it feels like change is moving from the outside in mm -hmm. instead of the inside out? What if the flow reverses? Then this, you know, those elements of the city, those people in the city who feel very attached to the city feel threatened. I, well, yeah, are you, are you riding the wave of the change or are you creating the change yourself? Right. It's right, right. How invested are you and, in what's happening? And this is why people bring up, you know, Amazon in particular, right? I'm going back to journalism. I remember some years ago, the Seattle Times did a pretty, it was it was sort of a, a touch point type story in my mind, at least, being the kind of person who follows local news very closely. And it was a story that that put into newsprint something that a lot of organizations in Seattle 
already knew, which was that Amazon was not locally involved. Oh, yeah. They have continued not been. Right. Yeah. And, and especially at that time. And there were some real contrasts to be drawn between them and Boeing, them and Microsoft, them and these other companies that show up at the fundraisers and donate to the causes and are part of the city's fabric. And Jeff Bezos and Amazon were not. So it's interesting because Amazon is homebrewed, but is it? And so that adds to the sense of suspicion when so much of what's driving growth tends to be associated with this one ginormous company, which by the way, just I think became more valuable than Microsoft. So yeah, it's this huge ballooning thing, but not everyone feels like it's theirs just because it started in Seattle. And that is really interesting to me. That's a particular case with Amazon too, because that's always been one of those so often when you're meeting new people, they're like, oh, I'm coming into town because I work for Amazon. Because so many of the new people that you meet, that's why they're here. And so you end up with this public perception is that all these newcomers are coming here because of this company. And then when the company has whatever reputation that they have from the various perspectives, it, it all plays together in that way. Right. And I, and, I, and I feel like I should add, to be fair to Amazon, that they're, they're, they have been taking steps recently. Probably the most interesting and impressive to me was giving uh, Mary's Place uh, like a whole, just a ton of space in Amazon's campus. So Mary's Place is a, um, a shelter for the unsheltered, uh, of, of which there are many in Seattle. And uh, so Amazon's doing some things. They also gave a Fair Start. Y'all mm -hmm. familiar with Fair Start? Sure. Uh, a big just you know, chunk of change to open new eateries. And Fair Start is a nonprofit that um, trains disadvantaged people in the food industry. And so they give jobs. Uh, and anyway, so yeah, it, it, just to clear up, right? Yeah. Like yes. what the Seattle Times reported back then may no longer be true now, but the association is there. It's kind of a little late. You know, it's a little too late. When you start doing that kind of things, the public perception, you have, you have to, if you start off on the wrong foot with that kind of thing, you have to... Got to go big right. to gain it back. Right. And what's somewhat ironic to me, I wonder if this is the correct use of irony, but all those up things that I was talking about when I first moved to Seattle, startups and, and you know, meetups and whatever. I mean, that was part of the culture that Amazon sort of moved in, right? I mean, Amazon, one argument for back then anyway, for Amazon's not being, you know, going out of its way to be involved civically is because they're too busy changing the world. They're, they're doing a thing. Uh, a lot of what they're doing is very, very exciting, especially in data collection. But there's kind of a dark side to it. And I oh, get that. absolutely. And I actually uh, was reading recently that one person was guessing that part of the reason there was so much resistance to Amazon was the that Boeing at one point relocated almost its entire base of operations from another state in the 80s. I wasn't familiar with this until recently. And that people are automatically distrustful that they'll do the same thing and that the HQ2 conversation oh, just know. made it worse and that it's all just like people have never recovered from that, yeah. that Boeing made all these promises and was 10 times more into the local community and then burned everybody. It was that day. I mean, as somebody who is, you know, really trying to kind of follow the mood that we're talking about, you know, mm -hmm. more so than just the headlines, but the right. mood of the city the day that HQ2 was 
announced that Amazon wants to find. Yeah, oh yeah. man, I remember just feeling like the pain, feeling, <laughs> yeah, feeling yeah. the pain and the <laughs> angst and the anger. And then, you know, some people going, yeah, you know, you could feel all of it. Oh yeah. All that reaction just, mm -hmm. oh man, <laughs> that was, yeah. that was just no, fascinating. Like, and in the, so being from Philly, I was reading the Philadelphia Inquirer at the time. So they're one of the cities that was on the original list. They're on the second cut list. And there was an article written by a Seattleite, which was two Philadelphians that they shouldn't be too excited for Seattle and then all these things. But the response piece was hilarious because they were just like, we have horrible unemployment and poverty and crime in our nicest neighborhoods. We'll we'll take it. Well, it's fine. Like right. we'll take all of that and more. It's cool. Exactly. Take our word for it. That's cool with us. The negatives of Amazon don't seem to add up to a ton. Besides, well, they don't seem to try as hard. There's traffic, and they don't seem to try as hard. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's the traffic. There's that. My husband and I have arguments around this all the time. You know, over specific things, and it kind of comes down to how is growth bad. Well, this is how growth is bad. But, but how is growth bad? You know, and and uh, you're growing. Right. There's way worse places to be right. than than growing and with a booming economy and all of that. So I think that's an interesting and important perspective to inject into all of this here and there. For sure. And when I press native Seattleites, well, I've never really pressed you, Rachel, but you seem to be so pro this stuff. When I press native Seattleites who are very anti-new people, very anti-change, uh, and I asked them to get the core of it. They seem to have a very hard time pulling out that target of exactly, like it doesn't seem like they really understand it. And I just wish I could get to the nucleus of it to be like, we can we can work on this together and it's gonna be okay, whatever that is. Just tell me, we can change, it's gonna be good. And then I can't quite get there, I always want to. I think, yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of reason to sort of fear, you know, that growth is happening really quickly, but it may not be happening in a way we want. And, and people are being left out and all of that. And when in the world does everyone in Seattle find the time to just stop their crazy busy lives in this booming economy and, right. <laughs> and like come together and think about it and try to hash it out? That's not gonna happen. Somehow it has to happen in the nooks and crannies of our days and lives. And yeah, how do, you, how do we do this? <laughs> and I feel like I saw you were in an event recently that spoke a little bit about how to disagree. Am I getting this wrong? Yeah. Okay. Because I didn't have a time. Yeah, yeah, I didn't yeah. have a chance to look into it. it in depth, but it seemed really interesting. So you to touch on this a little bit. Yeah. So uh, Crosscut, which is an excellent uh, nonprofit news organization in Seattle, had a Crosscut festival. So it was a one day long civic, you know, huddle of all the things, and they had wonderful people in town and, and lots of stuff. It was great. It's the first time they've done it, and we did a session called "We Disagree and That's Okay." Uh, because, and this is a running theme of the Evergrey, um, we believe that being a Seattleite is a wonderful identity worth all the pride in the world, and that very different people hold that same identity. And so there should be, and we will work hard to create in the Evergrey, a space where all those different people, all those different beliefs can still come together in one place and talk about their city. So we pay a lot of attention to the divisions and the places where conversation now seems toxic and impossible when it didn't used to. Yeah. You know, everything from, you know, the most obvious thing, which is that 
<clears throat> you used to be able to find Republicans in Seattle who would talk <laughs> yeah. and, and Maybe, talk to the themselves. media and, yeah. and all of that. And something broke there. Yeah. And, uh, and I'll tell you, again, as someone who follows the media very closely, we're not telling this story well. So, uh, but that's just, you know, one small example. There's also obviously the growing consciousness about race and equity. In the last five years, maybe less, South Seattle has had this renaissance in Seattle's consciousness. When I first got to Seattle, I remember working at the Seattle PI and sort of hearing in the newsroom, yeah, we're really bad at covering South Seattle. <laughs> you know, we never cover South Seattle. We're really bad at it. And everyone would kind of say like, yeah, we're really bad at it. No one would do anything about it. And, um, and you know, those were the times when that, that's the way news was done. It was done from a newsroom, right? And journalism's different now. Like, I'm certainly trying to make it different. You don't do news from a newsroom. You do news from your community. And you don't do news from your community. You do news from the communities that make up your community. You acknowledge that there is no one monolithic culture, and there never will be. And you go out and you explore and you experience and you talk and you have everyone belong, right? And you, anyway, so... Yeah, in that kind of climate, I don't think that it is possible right now for everyone to suddenly kumbaya and come together. That's not going to happen. In fact, I think that all this division is in a strange way healthy, and that may be a topic for another podcast because it's very <laughs> meta. But, um, <clears throat> but at some point, we have to at least remember that we have to talk to each other and that we can't be afraid of people who are different and in all the ways and, and how how can we disagree and not vilify i feel like we're at the stage if these two groups are two people in a relationship where you're like questioning a relationship and both of them are thinking about leaving and they need to both get to that point where like all right we're both staying <laughs> we need to figure out how to make this work because i feel like both like when i talk to a lot of people oh, i love seattle but i don't know maybe i'll have to go somewhere else and the same with Native Seattleites, so many I talked to were just like, maybe I'm not meant to be here anymore. Maybe I should check out Kansas City. This isn't my city anymore. I feel like both might end up in the same spot eventually, which is Native Seattleites might realize, you know, if everybody starts moving to that city, it's just going to be the same problems all over again in a city that I don't love. And the people who got here will realize, you know what, once people see that I'm investing in the community, I'll be one of them also. And then they'll be in that, all right, we're both not going anywhere so let's finally work this out. Because I feel like a lot of the conversations right now are still looking outside Seattle. Like they're just frustrated with the conversations, they're just looking elsewhere. That's why I found that so interesting that if we could just figure out how to get people okay with listening to someone else's what might seem crazy, non-conforming opinion, um, maybe we could get to that point sooner. If I could wave a magic wand, I think I might make it so that for one day, people could not talk about opinions. They could only talk about their experiences. That's it. So you couldn't say, I believe this and you're wrong. They would have to say, well, when I was growing up, this happened to me and it led me to this way of looking at the world. And then that other person goes, oh, I can see that. you know. And it's not, oh, you just attacked me. There are a lot of really awesome sort of lived experiences in the city, including from newcomers, right? Like who came from California, came from New York, and don't deserve to be labeled. You know, nobody deserves to be labeled. Let's look past that, right? And and people aren't out to try to destroy the city. People aren't yeah. out to try to be exclusive. Yeah. Nobody's trying to do that. At least 
That's what I believe. Now, might there be market incentives that make people behave in ways that end up excluding people? Absolutely, right? Is gentrification happening? And is it like, God, it's just what's happening in the Central District is painful. It's painful. I live there. I see it every day. Uh, Right. That's right. You've never talked about this. Yeah. I live in South Seattle. I live just at the southern end of Judkins Park. And I, I live in one of the buildings that scares the living heck out of people who 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 have been in that region for a long time, because it's a bunch of very dense row homes that are new construction. Um, and as designers, we deal with the most visual side effect of the conflict, which is trying to add density, or homeowners who are trying to think thought about moving realize there's nowhere to go and add almost add architectural density there's still a single occupancy lot but they're going to add more and so the the visual nature of the neighborhoods are changing which just amplifies how much change is happening and i think it's a lightning rod for conversations especially in the central district because the first thing developer does when they get a lot down there is like how many people can I jam on this lot? Which solves so many civic problems, but it looks like this super scary thing. Right, Because right. that does not look like my neighborhood. And and remember what I was saying about, like, I've kind of come to believe that, you know, what what really matters about what's going on around you is the energy that people have and how, they circ- how it circulates. Mm-hmm. And to me, what, you know, one way to name that is culture. And so for the Central District, it's also about that place used to be a culture that was reliable for a community. And the way that that neighborhood is changing means that that culture is disappearing and that people can't access the spaces where that culture used to live, but also that culture is no longer living in those spaces because the people can't access those spaces. And and so, you know, that community is moving to the suburbs, moving to other places. And and what? They have to rebuild that culture? That's daunting. You know, like, oh, man. Like, uh, so this sense of loss, there's a, there's sort of no more powerful motivator, I think, for a human being than a sense of loss. Ah! <laughs> yeah, no, and we it's struggle just... with this as designers all the time because the, the rules around building in Seattle are extremely restrictive. And we don't even necessarily know neighborhood to neighborhood what the most sensitive thing is to do. And no one's really having the conversation. We end up, even the most ethical of developers, the most invested in the community, don't necessarily have a forum to have that conversation. Yeah, yeah. And again, there's a lot of suspicion, right? Sure. So so I think about that with journalism. Like journalism right now is broken because there's no such thing as the one voice that everyone, no matter what they believe, trusts. Um, and I, I should say, I don't think that was ever true, really, but we had the illusion that it was true. Sure. Like, we've learned a lot of things about yeah. who was and was not represented right. by the voices of the media, right? right. But, but even so, I, I sort of, you know, stay up at night sometimes wondering, how does a democracy or a city or anyone hold up mm-hmm. when there cannot be a shared space, when there cannot be a shared reality where trust can be built and people can actually talk to each other and especially so especially in moments of crisis right especially in moments those of transition used to be the moments, and crisis yeah, those used to be the moments when journalism was looked up to like oh they're going to do their jobs now and everything's going to be we're going to listen to them and everything's going to be now a moment of crisis is the moment of the most doubt it seems like yeah yeah and and people don't know who to turn to and that gets like you said you know who can have the conversation who can who has the trust and, and when your answer is nobody, then you got a real problem. You know, how do you begin to heal that rift? Tricky. Yeah, we ran an event 
uh, a while ago last year that was all about neighborhoods or communities, all about communities and what community really means and what it is. And uh, we determined after, this was a roundtable discussion, we determined at the end of that discussion that architects probably shouldn't be in charge of the, <laughs> the direction of a community. But we also came to the parallel conclusion that the people who live in the community also shouldn't be totally in charge of the direction of their community either. Communities tend to be, at least this was the, the discussion's conclusion, tend to be very good at determining what the needs of their present are, but never very good at determining what the needs of their future will be. Do you think that outsiders are better, though, at that? It's possible. I don't know the answer is the I first, mean, that's first a risky, answer. That's a risky claim. That's first answer is I don't know. The second answer is maybe because they might have, the right outsider, might have a more balanced view of those needs. That's Outsiders are one thing, but <laughs> yeah. but people that study this and that that make it their profession to know—that's exactly what I mean. Yeah. Communities may or may not need based on whatever metrics they have, but I mean that there are people that their whole their whole existence is studying this over time, and it's a combination of community research and history sure. and development and all these things. And and so I think it's it, it's it's not true that outsiders have a better sense but it's also not true that insiders have a better sense but right. it, but it's that who are the who are the stakeholders and who are the resources mm -hmm. from outside that are coming in yeah and how I, informed I are they and how aware are they of and how capable are they of making sure that they're listening to what the insiders are saying i will say one essential ingredient to all of that that is never talked about you know in conferences because it's too schmarmy to talk about in conferences it's still real is that you need a community's love to understand what a community needs. And you outsiders don't have that. They That's can't. absolutely true. They can't. So I really believe that. You can't, you can read about the culture and you can abstractly understand the culture and you can identify with the culture. But if you don't include the culture, you cannot set that direction for the culture. Sure. Um, so it has to be a combined effort somehow, but there has to be trust. And so again, how? Yeah. <laughs> how? Because that's the thing is like at the end of the day, you, we're never perfect. Cities are never perfect, but it's like startups. Embrace your failure, you guys. Like, <laughs> yeah. long as you learn something, right? Yeah, like that's what startups talk about yeah. all the time. Is is it doesn't matter if you fail as long as you're learning, and the next one is better. So, here's hoping. Thank you so much for coming on. This was a lot of fun. This was a lot of fun. Thank y'all. A little bit of housekeeping here at the end. Our next night school event will be right around the corner, so keep a lookout on our website for that. It will be held here at Board and Vellum on 15th Avenue in Capitol Hill. Also, head over to our website and check out our blog. There's always super cool stuff being posted there every day. And as always, please stop on by anytime for a chat with us. We would love to have you. Thank you again, and we will see you all in a few weeks.